0: Um, I um, was traveling this week and was in Michigan, um, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, was at a conference. This is called the Acton Institute. And this conference, while I was in Grand Rapids, it was all expenses paid. I mean, it was a wine and dine. They took care of all of our fees and transport and even all of my Starbucks coffee every morning. Um, I didn't go as a speaker. I went as a student. And... uh, In a nutshell, and this was not a a covenant church conference, um, the foundations for freedom, for a free and just society. So it talks, these were Christians, um, but talking about everything from law to economics, and it was very insightful, and I think you might find some of this stuff that I was kind of living in this week, um, ethics in particular, um, kind of finding its way into today's talk. I am a little bit hoarse, a little bit kind of uh, from traveling, and if I step over there and pop a a lozenge in my mouth, just know that I've been uh, trying to get my voice back this week. Maybe I'll actually take some water before I start. So we've been in a series um, called Beginnings, hashtag beginnings. And we're looking at the Genesis story. Uh, for the next few weeks, we're at the end of the book of Genesis, focusing on the Joseph story, which is so significant. It takes up a good percentage of the entire book of Genesis, the Joseph story. And uh, just before this, we talked about this in Sunday school. Um, and uh, the the themes, I think, are so powerful that I can't really encapsulate it in one talk, but I'm going to do my best to get the most important stuff. As I shared in Sunday school, um, I've been reflecting on the Joseph story for over 10 years now and um, thinking a lot about it, and I'm always finding new stuff. The Joseph story... um, it, it's an interesting family story, and so I've mentioned this. I use this word previously. It's like a telenovela, or it's like a soap opera that you might watch, and it's about a, it's a family drama, is what it is. It, it, it talks about the Joseph character and how he has to mature. It talks about the father figure, Jacob, and it also talks about a brother named Judah. And for all of these three characters, it's important that they all undergo some kind of a transformation. Not just the father and not just the son, but also the sibling, the brother. And today what we're going to do is focus on the story of the brother, Judah. And if you can pull up that first picture of uh, the structure, I pointed this out before. The Judah story, you can see there um, in blue, In blue, C, Judah and Tamar, is what we're going to talk about today. But Judah comes up again and again. And later on, you can see at the bottom, C, C apostrophe or C prime. Jacob favors Joseph and Judah. I think what this shows us, the structure that I talked about last Sunday, is that the story of Judah is not this random throwaway story that's kind of Tossed into the mix, let's just kind of tell everything that we can. There is a story that's being told and there's a redemption that's happening, not just in Joseph's life, but in Judah's life as well. Judah is a very important character and we watch and see if he is going to turn things around. And so today I'm going to talk along three headings that you'll find in your notes. Those three headings begin with the death of Judah, first of all the death of Judah, second is the work of Tamar, and third is the birth of Judah. So the death of Judah, the work of Tamar, and then we'll conclude with the birth of Judah. We've been talking about how it's important to die before you die. Maybe you remember me mentioning this um, last Sunday Die before you die. The idea is that after you die, there is no chance afterwards to die. While you're living, turn around, encounter God, have a conversion moment, change your life, die before you actually die. And that question applied last week to Joseph and to Jacob. Today it's going to apply to Judah. As well, does Judah really have a converting moment? Does he die before he dies? Let's look at the scripture in Genesis chapter 38. Listen to the word of the Lord. It came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And so right away, we change scenes after Joseph is sent down to Egypt. Judah, his story picks up. He leaves his brothers, and we see that the brothers kind of each go their own separate way. They all do do their own thing. And in verse 2, Judah gets married and starts a family. He sees the daughter of a certain Canaanite. He goes into her she conceives and bears a firstborn son named Er. And then she conceives again and bore a second son named Onan. And then she bore a third son and named him Shelah. And so Judah goes off and he starts his own family and has three sons. And then after verse 5, there's a big time jump into verse 6. Where his oldest son, Heir, grows up and gets a wife for himself. So now we're getting into a third generation, not just Joseph I'm sorry, not just Jacob and Joseph, but now we're talking the grandkids. Recently, I met my niece for the first time ever, and it's weird. Um, seeing somebody that is your brother's or your sister's child, and that experience of seeing somebody that's genetically, you know, descended from you. Well, here we see that Judah, even he, now has children, having children. So uh, Judah takes a wife for Er, his firstborn, the oldest of the three, and her name was Tamar. And a very interesting figure in this story is inserted. Uh, The story of Tamar begins here. Now what happens is Er, it says in verse 7, This is Judah's firstborn. He was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so he dies. The Lord takes his life. And then Judah says to Onan, the second son, go to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, I hope you're grasping what's happening here. There are three brothers or three sons. Judah has three sons. And the first one dies. His wife gets passed on to the second. And eventually, as you'll see, to the third as well. What is this all about? Why does the daughter get passed, or why does the daughter-in-law, why does the wife get passed on down to these three brothers? Isn't that something that's unethical? It sounds weird. It's like, I mean, even the thought of it, if I died, then my wife, if this were, you know, traditional Jewish society, my wife would have to um, marry my younger brother, and he would have to perform the duty of raising up my children. Well, this is something in Jewish, ancient Jewish culture that's called leveret marriage. So it sounds weird, it sounds crazy, but it was a thing back then. It was, in a sense, almost like a welfare system. This woman, that is now part of the Park family, or whichever family, needed to be taken care of. If she became a widow and there was no brother to pass her down to, as much as this sounds bad, the fact of the matter is she would be destitute. She would be lost in a world. There was no, there was no social net and um, she would be lost. She would be poor, and she would be on her own. So it was a social welfare system for the widow, but it also served the purpose, this thing called leveret marriage. It also served the purpose of making sure that the family lineage continued. It was necessary to continue the family line. And so what happens in verse 9, as we pick up from there again, Onan has this duty and this responsibility to carry on the family line and to take care of his brother's wife. But this is what happens in verse 9. He knew that the offspring would not be his. So when Onan went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so God took the second brother's life as well. The timing worked out well. Actually, today um, the kids are in youth group; all the children are dismissed because today there's a couple of things that come up in the passage that I think is only, it's, you know, rated NC-17. It's not well. Actually, this is something that I think our young people should learn, and they should hear. Um, but it needs to be taught well. And so today I want to attempt to teach well, why was it sinful? What is it about what Onan did? I mean, if, if you're like, wait, I, I, was, I dozed off. But Read it again. Read verse 9. What, it is, what is it that Onan did that was so bad that God killed him? What was it, what, what exactly is this act that takes place here? You know, um, when I was a younger man, I had a lot of questions about, um, what it meant to be a Christian. I became a Christian at the age of 13. And, you know, one of the first things that I learned to turn my life around was, was my language. Um, by the age of 13, growing up in the streets of Queens and New York, I, I cussed like a sailor. And I had to stop cursing. And after I got that habit out and I began to ask questions: what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you live as a Christian? And naturally, as young boys do, I began to ask questions about sex. And what are sexual ethics? What do we Christians believe about sex? And I remember reading a book at that time, and I'm going to trash this book, and it's okay for me to do that because I don't remember. I don't remember what the title of the book is. I don't remember who wrote it. But I remember reading this book, and it was talking about all different kinds of sexual issues. And it was, it was talking about um, things like contraception, uh, abortion, masturbation, Um, sex before marriage, and in the end, the judgment of this book, it was a Christian book, was we can't really talk about abortion. We can't really say conclusively anything about masturbation or, I mean, sex before marriage, we can talk about that because that would be qualified as fornication, but we can't say anything about a lot of things pertaining to sex because, honestly, the Bible doesn't talk about those things. For example, does the Bible ever mention masturbation? Does it ever mention um, abortion, contraception. What does the Bible have to say? I mean, here, Onan, his, instead of performing his duty, his seed gets spilled on the ground. Well, what does the Bible have to say? How does it interpret it? Well, it doesn't explicitly say that what he did or... And, and in the end, um, because the Bible didn't explicitly say, um, the author couldn't come up with any firm ethical worldview when it came to sex no firm ethical worldview that especially on the heels i mean i didn't learn this last week in michigan this is something that i've i've come to believe in the past many years but this is something that we can talk about friends the bible does talk about sexual ethics The Bible does talk, especially in this day and age where so many sexual norms are being um, kind of thrown out for debate and the government, unfortunately, is being forced to make decisions where the church traditionally held this role. And so what's happening is you have Christians that say, what did the Bible really say? But the Bible does say something. It doesn't explicitly talk about the morning after pill. Such things don't exist. It doesn't explicitly talk about what stage life begins or contraception, but the Bible talks about a very important concept, which we miss, but it's in there. And this is the concept of the seed, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Adam, the seed of of the lineage leading all the way up to Jesus. And the idea that the seed, and if you know what I'm speaking about biologically here, the seed that emerges from the body of a male, of the male gender, now women also contain uh, the womb, the ovum, the receiving fertility of the seed. But what we're talking about here is a creative life force, the potentiality for life. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you'll know how much power lives within you as Christians. Now, in one sense, the power is a spiritual power, but it is also a creative power because Paul talks about this power that lives within us as being the power that raised Christ from the dead but I would say it's also the power to create all things in the very beginning. In other words, when God made Adam and Eve, God created and he put his creative DNA in us. The capacity to create, just like God creates, now lives within men and women. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about this. The Bible does say It just doesn't use those specific words. When we understand that the Bible talks about the seed as containing tremendous creative potential, that let's just say, like, somehow, you know, science gets to the point where you could fertilize, a a male could fertilize his wife's ovum, the egg, and then you could just kind of put it in the refrigerator and just store it for a couple of years. What would you do with that thing? Thaw it out? Deposit it? Let it have its natural course. I mean, such is the state of science today. Such that the question now remains, what do we Christians believe about things such as abortion, such as contraception, such as masturbation, such as um, same-sex love and marriage? All of these issues, the church, because, you know, kind of like that book that I threw out years ago, The church doesn't know what to say to those things because we haven't thought through this issue of the seed. When we approach it from this angle, friends, we can say that life at conception is an incredibly powerful thing. And when scientists try to define that life begins when there's a heartbeat, or life begins when there's a placenta, or a womb, or life needs a context. Really, it's all arbitrary. Because this is not a scientific question. Even scientists say we're not really sure when life begins, because that's a question of the church, or of the ethicist. So what does the church say? The church says that life begins the minute that the uh, seed fertilizes the egg, the ovum. Why? Because the potentiality is there. Now, you know, you, you might be seeing how my cards here and what I believe. But I believe it is the province of the church to speak ethics back into the world. Because the world is based on science. And science cannot provide, ultimately, ethics. Or what about contraception? What do we believe about contraception? I remember early on when I was a single man, I overheard a married couple. And they asked, you know, they asked, you know, Dad, what do, I, what, do I, what do we, you know, a man asked his father-in-law, what do we believe about contraception? He says, well, we're not Catholic. So, you know, have fun and just use whatever means necessary if you don't want to get pregnant. But you see, the thing is, the seed, when it gets spilled on the ground in the case of Onan, God was not pleased with that. God was not pleased with, with, wait, 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 wait. You did what with the seed? Onan, you have a duty. You have a responsibility. It's a family duty, a family responsibility, and that that seed was not meant to go there. It was meant to go where it's supposed to go. So you see, you can extrapolate this out for many things. You can talk about, you know, you know back in the day, you know, if, if, if when it came to the church, you know, what the argument, don't masturbate, you know, to, to young boys. Why? Because you'll grow hair on your hands. That's the only reason that, that that old woman could give. No, 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 here's the ethical basis. Because the seed has a place to go. And there's a duty that's bound to that creative power. When you realize that I possess, as a human being, as a man, creative power, as a woman, recipient of creative power, and together we co-create creative power, we understand that the power to make life is not something to be used flippantly, meant to be spilt, it's not meant to be spilt on the ground. If I can sum it up in one simple statement that can, I think, wrap up all of my ethics... Let the seed go where it's supposed to go. That's it. We have a creative duty, a duty, a family bound duty. And therefore, God was displeased with Onan. Not because he was going to grow hair on his hands or because he was, but because he was neglecting his responsibility to his family. And apparently that seems to run in the family. I mean, if you remember, who was the last person to do that? Dad. Judah did the same exact thing. His brother. His brother, he completely neglected his brother. He sold him into slavery. You know, I've told this story, I've told this story a couple of times. Forgive me for telling it again. For those of you who haven't heard this, I want to share it. Because this, this hits home very close for me. I've been meditating on this story for over 10 years. There's a reason why. You know, when I, when I was um, a young man, um, I realized early, on, not even a young man, when I was a boy, I realized that my father was important, an important man in the community. I recognized he was an important man because he, he was the oldest of seven siblings. My dad was, is, was, one of, one of my uncle passed away. And um, when we went to visit my family in Korea, I remember how kind they were to me. Bear with me, those of you who've heard this story like 20 times already. But they were very kind to me. But when my cousins all immigrated to New York and joined us, I was 13 years old. I was interested in other things. I didn't have time for my immigrant cousins. And I was never able to care for my family. I wasn't able to look out for my brother. My sense of duty was Eclipsed by Nintendo and chasing girls unsuccessfully and trying to play baseball unsuccessfully and trying to be cool unsuccessfully. And so instead of my duty to my family, and I really believe, I really believe that the family is the fundamental building block of society and necessary to the restoration of of our great culture, that is America. Um, But the problem is we have a nation of young boys that are being raised up on the internet and terrible things on the internet. You know, you want to talk about spilling seed on the ground. And a nation of young boys who are raised on, on complete, and not just boys, girls as well, complete detachment, family You don't hear as often anymore, I love my family. I love spending time with my family. No, many families, it's sit at the dinner table, it's quiet, and everybody just kind of goes off into their own separate lives. The preservation and the protection of the family and the responsibility of the family, I think, is the great message here. But Judah is not doing it. His sons are not doing it. And we have a very bad trend, a very bad trend. This is the death of Judah. This is the death of Judah. And it gets worse. I know I'm still in the first heading, but there's so much here. You know, like we were doing this in adult Sunday school, and and Blake and um, Elder, they, they were stunned. Like, there, I saw things today that I hadn't seen in 10 years. The Bible is an amazing book, especially the Old Testament. You see Christ. You see a lot. So hang with me. We're still in this first heading because Judah, Judah, he's still dying. He's getting worse and worse. He's dying, right? Because listen to this. Listen to this in verse 11. Out of fear, Judah's afraid. Okay, woman, you're bad luck, right? Ur dies, Onan dies, and I don't want Shalah to die as well. So, go, 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 get out of here, go home. That's what he says. He says to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Go to your father's house and remain a widow there. Which in other words, in Jewish traditional society meant, I don't care about you. You are a red mark on my budget. I don't want to waste any more on you. Get out of my house. You might think Pastor Wayne sounds very conservative today. But I want to talk from a feminist perspective as well. If you are a woman and you're told, get out, I don't want to take care of you anymore, and you have a voice, you should say, where am I going to go? Go to your dad's house. Go to my dad's house. When I'm married, I became part of your family. You're supposed to look out for me. No, 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 no. I don't want to look out for you. Wait, wait, wait. You abandoned your brother, your son's did not perform their duty, and now you're going to kick me out. You have a legal binding right to me, a responsibility. But Judah says, don't want to deal with it. He kicks his daughter-in-law out. You can see the social implications in that society. This is a woman now that is on the brink of poverty, no welfare, nothing. She's in trouble. And Judah... Is about to abort his own future. I want to show you this clip. Um, do we have that clip prepared? I want to show you this clip um, that I think illustrates what is, a, what is kind of happening here. Uh, let me just preface it by saying, you know, when I was in school, they taught us never use a sermon illustration if people remember the sermon illustration more than the the point. So, you know, sermon illustrations shouldn't distract. This is the perfect sermon illustration. The reason that it's perfect is because it illustrates the point of what I'm trying to make on multiple levels so clearly. If you remember this clip that you see, you will remember the content of this message. So if you could play this clip from Back to play the Future. with his hand like that. Pardon? We can't play without him. Yeah, well look Marvin, Marvin you gotta play. See, that's where they kiss for the first time on the dance floor And if there's no music, they can't dance If they can't dance, they can't kiss If they can't kiss, they can't fall in love and I'm history Hey man, the dance is over (laughs) Unless uh, you know somebody else that can play the guitar This is for all you lovers out there like fly cutting in <laughs> I think you can see in this story why it's so important for the man to fulfill his duty and his responsibility. It might seem like I'm picking on the men today, I typically do that, but this is a message for all people that if you do not fulfill your role, your son or your future daughter, I mean, if you I'm assuming everybody's familiar with this movie, but that guy playing the guitar, he went back to the future to save his father. And when his father could not perform his duty or was not able to stand up and be responsible, everything in the future disappears. Marty McFly, he disappears. You see, for a man like Judah, instead of facing his duty and his responsibility, turns around and sulks and walks away out of fear or out of laziness or because the Xbox came out with a new release or because he's wasting his seed on the ground or because he's doing anything but paying attention to his family and his future, will basically abort everything. And in this story, in that story, Marty McFly, you, you know, if you watch this movie, watch it again. It's so much fun. He's, you know, only like uh, Michael J. Fox can do. He's frantic, he's always running around. He's working. He's working to save his past, their future. But he knows if I don't save my past, I die. So he's working, he's working, he's working to save the future. I think you know at this point who George McFly, who the father is. It's Judah, right? Who's Marty McFly in this biblical story? Who's going to be the one that works and works and works to save the family? Guess. It's not Onan. It's not Er. It's not Shelah. It's not even Judah himself. It's Tamar. Tamar single-handedly saves the family. And like that moment where Marty McFly comes back and he plays the guitar and everything is realized, everything in the rest of the biblical history is saved because of this woman. And you're going to see in a moment why. Maybe you've read the story, you're familiar, you've read the Bible, and you're thinking, wait, how does Tamar save, understand the Bible from this point on all the way to the end If Tamar doesn't do something, it all disappears. Earth angel, earth angel, it all disappears. But when Tamar works, the rest of the Bible gets materialized. And you'll see why in a moment. You'll see why in a moment. Second heading is the work of Tamar. The work of Tamar. What does Tamar do? What does Marty McFly do? He's running around. He's trying to save the story. Save the story. What a beautiful metaphor. Tamar works to save the story. I'm going to read a long passage here. I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to paraphrase in chapter 38, verse 12. After Judah's wife dies, and when the time of mourning was over, Judah went to the sheep shears at Timnah, and Tamar gets word of it. She hears, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah. Okay, she also realizes that his his wife, my mother-in-law, is dead, so what she's about to do will not be construed as adultery, although it becomes ethically kind of murky. And so what does she do in verse 14? This is Tamar working. Now, I don't, I don't want to say that, that, that the, the province of the woman is to operate sexually. That's not the direction I'm going with this. More so, I'm trying to say that it, a, a wise woman knows how to get involved in the right way. A wise woman, so as much as I'm talking to men, I'm also talking to women. Wise women know how to get involved just enough, oftentimes, to wake up the duh, you know, the dull, the dull man of the house. But not always. Sometimes a wise woman needs to operate and work, and what she does in verse 14 is she changes her clothes and she covers herself with a veil and sits at the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. Because she saw that Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. So she knows what's, what's going down. So this is what happens in verse 15. Judah passes by, and of all things, he thinks that she was a prostitute because of the way she was dressed. So he turns aside to her by the road, and he says, here now, let me come in to you. He didn't realize it was his daughter-in-law. And she says, what will you give to me so that you can come in? And he said, I'll give you a young goat. A young goat. What is it about the young goat that appears again and again and again? Uh, uh, This young goat constantly is a theme. Anyway, "I'll, I'll give you a young goat. She says, okay, well... I would also like a pledge. And he says, what pledge? And about this point, really desperate. What pledge shall I give you? And she says, give me your seal, your cord, and your staff. Three possessions. Seal, cord, and staff. And so he gives it to her. He goes into her. And she actually conceives by her father-in-law. She arrives, she departs, and then she changes back to her widow's garments, Later, Judah sends the young goat, intends to receive his stuff back. She's not there. And he says, well, forget about it. Let it go unless I become a laughingstock. Verse 24, three months later, Judah gets the information because that's about how long it takes, right? Not long enough to start showing, but long enough for, you know, that's traditionally the mark. You know, I'm pregos, whatever. Right? So three months later, Judah gets word through the grapevine, your daughter-in-law is pregnant. And it must have been through prostitution because she's not with any husband. And Judah, what a hypocrite. Bring her out and let her be burned. Punish her. This is probably the last dumb thing that Judah says, the last dead thing. The extent of his death goes so far that his hypocrisy is being shown. But what Tamara does here, with Earth Angel playing in the background, jumpstarts everything for Judah, for the tribe of Judah, for Jews, for Christians, and for herself. It was an incredibly unselfish act. Don't misunderstand, Tamar didn't do this because when she got married to Ur to, to er and Onan, she says, ooh, but that Judah, he's he's a dish. You know, I'd really like to land dad in law. No. <coughs> no. It wasn't about that. It was work, an act of salvation for her family, saying, these people, we don't even, I'm, I'm not even sure, maybe you can help me. Uh, conclusively if she was even an Israelite. But she looks at these, this Jewish family and says they don't get it. So I have to be the one to teach them. And uh, listen to the way she teaches them. I love this. Listen to the way she teaches them. So as she's being brought out to be burned she brings these three things. And she says, please examine and see. I love those words. In Hebrew, please look at this. Please examine, recognize, and see. In Hebrew, the words are hakarna, hakarna. If, if if it was just haker, it would say, "Look at this." But it's hakarna. So there's a there's a, a an honorific. There's please, sir. Look at this. And, and, and what's so striking about that phrase, and, and here's the thing, I told you, I've been reading this story for 10 years, meditating on this story for over a decade, but I just saw this last week, for the first time. I saw this last week. Those same exact words in Hebrew, Hakarna, please examine and see. You know when that appears earlier? When the brothers deceived their father with the, with the coat, the multicolored coat of Joseph. The same words. They deceive their father saying, please examine and see. Does this belong to Joseph? Hakarnah. So it's almost like this cheeky daughter-in-law comes up to her dad and says, please examine and see. Because I know what you did all those years. I know what you did that summer. I know what you did to your own family. So face yourself, examine and see. How's that for girl power right there? Right? that This girl has got some moxie on a police exam. Whoa. You catch that? You know, there's times where a woman, right, can speak up, and, you know, men, like, you know, uh, we see red. Like, don't you dare, right, right? But there's times where... Man, she just talked you into a corner? You best shut up. It's just like, I can't believe she just said that. I can't believe it's so true. It's so true. And I have nothing to say. Because back then, I mean, if they were burning women, he could have done, he could have have been violent. But in this moment, this bozo finally wakes up and this leads to the birth of Judah, the third and last heading. In this moment, Judah, it says, recognizes. Recognizes. And this is lost in the English. I'm sorry, it's lost in English. I'm going to point it out. In the Hebrew, whenever she says, or even the brothers, see, examine, see, that word see, and recognize here, it's the same exact word. In other words, Throughout the Joseph story, constantly, constantly this theme, recognize, see, you better recognize, see, 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 constantly comes up. What we see in verse 26, Judah looks at the staff, he looks at these garments, he looks at these articles, of and he recognizes. He recognizes. There is a moment in every young man's life, even woman's life where you put your ego to death, you shut your mouth because finally you've been trapped and you realize you have nothing left to say, all you have left to do is change your life. You recognize. Judah recognizes at this moment, and you know what he says? She's more righteous than I. Righteous. What a powerful statement. She's better than me. I mean, for the male ego, that's one thing, but that word in Hebrew, righteous, tzedak, this idea of righteousness will get carried all the way to the New Testament. The realization that he is not righteous, that she is righteous, this woman, this Marty McFly is righteous, this gets carried all the way to the end because for the first time in his life, Judah, who's been running away, who's been going off with his Xbox or just living his own life, self-interested, for the first time he wakes up and realizes he has blood guilt on his hands. He's guilty. Because by the time he meets Joseph and doesn't recognize his brother Joseph after all those years, you know what he says in chapter 44? In chapter 44, verse 16, he says, we can't justify ourselves. God has finally caught up to us We reap what we sow, we're paying for our sins now. The minute we realize I'm guilty and what goes around comes around, that's the beginning of waking up. That's the birth. That's a conversion. That's the new life. When we realize God will not be mocked, seed is not meant to be spilled on the ground, nor is life and creative potential. And therefore, Judah is birthed with these words. She is more righteous than I. And he will realize all the way to the end of the story, with humility, listen to this, with humility, like his dad, he will walk with a limp for the rest of his life, realizing, I did wrong. I am guilty. And I cannot justify myself. Let me close off with this last passage. In chapter 38, Verse 27, we see the end of the story and the outcome. The outcome of the story is Tamar gives birth. All that work so that she could bear not just children to save her life, but to save the family and save the family she does because she gives birth to twins. Twins again. This is the Genesis story repeated over and over again. She gives birth to Zerah and Peretz. And Perez is important, and we see this later on in the genealogy, that Perez would be the father of Hetzron, Hetzron would father Ram. Ram would father Aminadab. 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 Aminadab would father Nachshon. Nachshon. Salmon. Salmon. Boaz. Boaz. Oved. Oved. Jesse. Jesse. David. In other words. The work of Tamar would save the kingly line of Israel. And if you know how this story turns out, not just at the end for Jews, but for Christians, you realize why it's so important for a wise woman to work the family. Do you get it? Do you get it? Why is it important for Tamar, the wise woman, to work the family? Because if she did nothing... And if she said, well, I give up. I check out. I'm just a defeated woman. I mean, come on. Did you not watch Captain Marvel? And, 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 like, you know, all these girl power movies that are coming out? These, Right? I mean, y'all got to do something. Because the men are not doing anything. The men are busy on the internet and Xbox and doing all this other stuff. Y'all got to do something. Because if you don't, The kingly line of Judah and David never happens. And if that never happens, my goodness, we might all disappear at this moment because there is no Christ. There's no Christ. I want to finish with two things that we can learn from the birth of Judah. Two things. The first thing, the first fill in the blank, just to take home, and to reflect on is, we cannot save ourselves. When, when, when Judah says, "I can't justify myself," that walking with a limp, that humility is the beginning of maturity. It's the birth. It's, it's, that means we've died before we died. That means we've realized we've realized, I, I can't do this alone. I mean, if I can just put this in simple psychological terms, the turnaround in our lives is when we finally ask for help. It's the first time in our lives when we ask for help. I I can't do this. I, I can't do this. We can't save ourselves. This is a fundamental Christian doctrine. But the second application and the fill in the blank, and I know I address this to men. Listen to her. But I I don't want to just speak to men today because it's not always foolish men. Sometimes there are foolish women as well. There are such things. Typically, I pick on men because I'm a dude. I can do that. It's not politically incorrect if you're picking on your own kind. (laughs) Right? I would say men, listen to her. Listen to her. But I would change this now to say, listen to each other. Because just as much as men have to die before they die, so do women. I think men a little bit more, just a little bit more. But the the need for us to, in a moment when we're caught in a corner, to be quiet and just take what you just heard because you've been rebuked, corrected, and you realize, holy smokes, there's so much truth to that. It hurts like heck, and I'm so angry, and I'm like, have you ever done, like, have you ever done, like, (sighs) I've, I've done that. And it's a good thing to do that. No, it's not good to grit your teeth. You need a mouth guard if that's what you do. But it's good to restrain yourself every now and then. It's good. You know why? because God gave us two ears, two eyes, and one mouth, so we can listen twice as much, see twice as much, and shut up half the time. You get it? Because there's a lot of good to learn. That really hurt a lot, but okay. Well, let me think about that one. Gosh, why'd you have to say it like that? <laughs>